Thanks for pressing play. The question on almost everyone's mind in business right now is, is Sam Bankman-Fried, founder and CEO of the crypto exchange FTX, the crypto Madoff, or is he just an entrepreneur who made some horrible mistakes? Today, we examine that question with the legendary Jim Campbell. And Jim is the author of the best-selling, the definitive book on Bertie Madoff called Madoff Talks. And uh, he did deep, deep analysis on that book. He became pen pals with Bernie Madoff and got in his mind and into the details of what happened there, probably more than anybody in the world. So he's an extraordinary guy. He also has a Netflix special coming out soon called Madoff, The Monster of Wall Street. Uh, Now, the FTX slash Sam Bankman Freed crypto scandal is clearly one of the biggest in tech. And it could end up costing, and again, data and information is foggy here. This is a developing situation. But it could cost as many as a million people, customers, partners, and investors, around $10 billion. And again, um, this is a a highly changing situation and facts are hard to come by. But that seems to be roughly the size of this problem. Today with Jim, we go deep, examining the similarities and the differences between an old school Wall Street scam by Bernie Madoff and a new school crypto disaster by SBF and what will likely happen to his company FTX. Will customers, partners, and investors in FTX get any money back? What's the likelihood of that? Will SBF go to jail? Madoff got sentenced to over 100 years for his crimes. Is that what awaits SBF? Or is this not a crime? And uh, he's going to go on to do great things. We dig into all of it and much, much more. This is a deep dive with the world's number one Madoff expert. And I'm telling you, even if you think you know this story, every second of this dialogue is riveting. You're listening to Christopher Lockett, Follow Your Different, the number one real dialogue podcast for business people who want to go deep with the legendary minds of our time. And now, as Joey Ramone said, hey ho, let's go. Well, Jim, it sure is great to see you again. How are you, sir? I am very honored to be back. I know the last time we talked for like two hours. So uh, uh, you uh, you do your homework and you ask great questions. So it's my honor to be back, Chris. Well, thank you. And I've been trying to do some homework on this one as well, because I, uh, I, I want to be prepared for you because I know <laughs> I know you bring the, the insights and the facts and the data. So maybe let's ask the obvious question, particularly to you as the uh, author of the definitive book on Madoff. Is Sam Bankman-Fried the Madoff of crypto, like uh, many are saying? Yeah, I look at it. Is FTX, SBF, is it Madoff 2.0? And um, my answer to that is there are similarities and there are differences. Um which may sound like equivocation, but where I start with first, as I thought through this, because I've been asked by many people, both of them developed great reputations of trust. 
to start off. In the case of Madoff, it was, you know, decades on Wall Street with a legitimate business and coming to co-op the regulators, as you know, and having loyal clients for 40 some odd years. Uh, in the case of SBF, he's made himself a little bit of a contrarian within that community by saying, I welcome some regulation, which made him a bit of a pariah. He had a lot of Democrats on his payroll, and it's not that blood, obviously, but he had lobbyists. Um, and so he was very well connected. And uh, even today, you know, Bernie uh, was arrested the day that he confessed. This guy's still walking around the Bahamas. And, you know, there's 10 million, 10 million bucks uh, of money that was commingled. And of course, that's, um, that's the most obvious uh, connection in my mind, which is commingling of customer funds with firm funds is not only a terrible thing, not only a legal thing, but that, of course, was at the core of Bernie's business. And, you know, this guy is pleading, well, I didn't have any controls. I didn't know what was going on. I was surprised. I wasn't in touch with Alameda, their conflicted affiliate that he owned 90 percent of. That his girlfriend was running, apparently. And, and his girlfriend was running it. And she claimed she didn't have any real background to be running it. And uh, he's running around, running his mouth off. So so this was something I thought about um, with you slash. Well, I don't know if you want me to think of you when I think of Madoff, but I do. <laughs> but when I when, as this story was developing and the Alameda stuff started to get clearer and clearer and the relationship or whatever you want to call it between FTX and Alameda started to come out, I couldn't help but think about. Madoff, and in particular, our discussion in your book, where you made it, you make it very clear, there was this weird thing with Madoff, where he had one company that was a Ponzi scheme that was corrupt on one floor uh, that was contained and very few people knew about. And then he had another company that, based on if I'm remembering your book and your work properly, uh, was was run ethically. Is, is that, Am I remembering this correct? Yeah, that's correct. And there's an example, by the way, which I say ends up looking more like the Enron case, which is Bernie had one company with two floors and marked off. This uh, SBF has tons of Byzantine-like uh, entities, uh, ranging from obviously the big exchange FTX and uh, the Alameda Research, um, where they were basically stealing customer money to use it as collateral. But all that stuff all over the place looks more like Enron to me than um, than, than what Bernie uh, but Bernie did. And let me for just for folks, uh, the first thing you ought to, ought to say is, well, a Ponzi scheme involves no real investment activity. Um, it's taking the returns of somebody coming in the front door and giving them to somebody going out the back door. This was not obviously a Ponzi scheme, but I look at this and there's some suspicion about something called the FTT token, which he was using as, quote, their version of a currency, right, which he had to keep stable, right, because of all the collateral. And if that's artificially stabilized, um, that's not a good thing. And that that gets a little bit over into a Ponzi type of thing. And now I just heard as of yesterday, he was shorting one of the stable coins, right, and that's market manipulation if he was doing it on purpose to drive down one of the stable coins that's supposed to balance each other and stay tethered to the dollar, as you know. So, you know, he's very good at proclaiming his innocence, and I'm sure going against all his lawyer's advice by doing interviews every day. He's done an extraordinary—have we ever had, Jim, to the best of your knowledge, a 
I'll use the word criminal. You tell me if that's unfair. A criminal like this be so public. I mean, he's talked to the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. He's been on countless podcasts. I I'll, I want to talk to you about this. I've consumed a bunch of these things and I sort of had a progression of my mental wellness as I consume them that I want to share with you. But it is. it seems to me, to use a word of our times, unprecedented that a potential or accused criminal or implied criminal would go on such an incredible public speaking and podcast guesting tour. You know what? I see a similarity there again, made up, which is hubris, pride, arrogance. They don't like to admit they're wrong. Um, they don't like to listen to people. And you have to be out of your mind to be doing all these interviews, saying all these things, when these are fundamentally corrupt activities. You know, taking customer money is one of the worst things you can do on Wall Street, which gets to another problem here. There's no regulation in crypto, right? And um, further, it's split between the CFTC and the all that kind of stuff, SEC. But um, I have no idea why he's speaking like this. And it's so arrogant to just say, oh, I didn't know what I was doing. You, you're responsible for $32 billion at one point of, uh, of, uh, of market value. You can't be running it like, well, you know, my daughter, my five-year-old daughter's spreadsheet didn't work this morning. Well, and to that end, Jim, this is the part that, you know, I've consumed a bunch of his most recent uh, podcasts and so forth. When asked by the New York Times, when asked by the Wall Street Journal and, and many others, one of my favorite questions, Jim, where's the money, Lebowski? Yeah, uh, I know. I was listening and recently to. seem to care. Well, you know, he has this. It, it's so interesting because he speaks in this intelligentsia, uh, bizno Wall Street babble. But I was listening to a, a very recent uh, podcast he did with the Wall Street Journal, and the reporter actually went to the Bahamas and met him in person. And it seemed like to me, the reporter asked him 16 times from Sunday, okay, there's approximately $8 billion here that was misused. Where is it? Yeah. And, and, and he has this answer. That is, I, I can't even describe it. I've been in business 35 years. You know, I probably drink too much, but I'm not the dumbest person in the world. I, I don't understand the answer. There's a bizno babble that I could try to recreate, but there's just a babble. And, and the reality of the answer, to your point on the hubris and the arrogance, the reality on the answer is, I don't know. Yeah, and you know, when there's things, $300 million he spent on uh, real estate in the Bahamas. That, again, looks like piggy bank stuff. But he lied about that on a podcast as well. When asked directly on a podcast about that, he he gave, again, some this weird Wizard of Oz, don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain answer that said that he got the money, but then he used it to buy equity in, in some of the companies, and like, like it was somehow some altruistic thing that he didn't, that $300 million wasn't for personal use. Do, do you believe any of that? That word of, altru word of altruism is also interesting, too, because that seems to be part of his con, you know, that um, uh, this was going to be all given away anyway. And all I care about is doing right and doing good. And by the way, another thing that's similar, um, again, the institutional side of this, abrogating their due diligence. You've got Citadel, BlackRock, SoftBank, all kinds of elite institutional investors that have thrown money at this guy, right? Madoff 
had billions from these feeder funds, right? Who in their point were in their case weren't allowed to do due diligence, which was the whole basis for their business. And so again, we have a fundamental failure here of on Wall Street as well. You know, and the interesting thing about that, I I almost tweeted this out, but I thought it might make me sound like a something. But uh, I think the new word in uh, venture capital is, or the new phrase, I should say, is due diligence. And the interesting thing here, uh, and this is a contrast I was looking forward to getting into with you. Uh, we had Brian Roberts on, and I've known Brian for years. He's a senior partner at Venrock Capital. And a lot of people consider him to be, if not the greatest, certainly one of the greatest healthcare tech, healthcare tech investors. And during the whole Theranos scandal, the media was relying on him tremendously. And uh, so uh, he came on and we sort of began to unpack some of the things around Theranos. And he said long before the decisions, long before the sentencing, that he thought they were criminals. And he walked through why he thought that was the case. Anyway, long story longer, one of the questions everybody asked um, Brian is, how come you didn't invest? And he said he did some due diligence. They had he had some people in their firm go out and look at their technology just in the retail world and do this and do that. And he said, look, it, it didn't pass sort of three or four questions or around. How does this work? Why does this work this way, et cetera? And so he just he said, I, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he didn't know it was a criminal endeavor, but the technology didn't make any sense. It's a great point there, Chris, because. There's another great con. She was playing on unsophisticated, you know, she had George Schultz on her board. She was doing that game. But if you looked under the hood, what you just said, none of the traditional venture capitalists gave her money. And whenever anybody said this was a wall, uh, was a, a Silicon Valley scandal, many of us in Silicon Valley said, well, yeah, it, it happened here. But to your point, none of the big players with the exception of Tim Draper were in this thing. In the case of FTX, we have some of the greatest tech entrepreneurial yep. investors of all time. With doing no due diligence, the feeder funds from Madoff did no uh, due diligence. And it, it, it's just something that is un, unacceptable. Let me tell you, due diligence, you know, is a big issue with me. The SPAC market collapsed, right? Why did the SPAC market collapse? Because there's no due diligence requirement. So you have good people involved doing good deals, but it inevitably attracts all the sleazebags, because they realize you can say anything you want. And I don't even want to go into link to politics, but there's a former president who's doing a SPAC right now, too, that falls completely into the total no due diligence kind of thing is the only way it could get through. Well, and, and to your point, you know, as a former officer and director of public companies, been part of taking companies public, secondaries, et cetera, et cetera. You know, when the SPAC thing first started to come out, I remember saying, um, okay, well, explain this to me. And I would get smart people to explain it to me. And I'd say, okay, explain this to me. And it, it, the, the mechanics of it seemed very strange to me. And, and clearly, to your point, there were very ethical people who used this as a device to get public in a very efficient and effective way. And, and I understand that. And I understand that, that that's what it was designed to be and so forth. But to your point, the whole time the SPAC thing was going on, I was like, so the sales pitch for this is uh, you don't have to go on a uh, on an IPO roadshow. You don't have to talk to uh, you know a bazillion investors. You don't I have to S one and all that. Uh, correct. Uh, and and listen, I've been a part of writing more S ones than I can remember. 
And 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 what I thought about that was uh, there's a discipline that comes with the IPO process. It's it's a painful process. It's a tough process. There's an integrity to it, yeah. But you know what? And I've never been deep in a political campaign, but it sort of reminds me of a political campaign, which is the IPO process just on its own tests the management team. In, in, in you know, it's a pressure test. And I, anyway, I always thought, why, why do all this? Do do what we all understand. And and of course, we have all seen what's happened. And so, you know, we had Sarbanes Oxley. Do you know how old Sarbanes Oxley is now? Is it twenty plus years old? It's yeah, it's right after the Tyco Enron stuff, which was around two thousand and one. Right on the back of the dot com bust and Enron, and so we've had new regulation to force transparency on corporations for many many years. And transparency is the watchword, or we thought was the watchword. And I understand these are private companies, so it's a different bar. But given what these companies do, that they're in the financial markets, regardless of whether or not they're public entities themselves. How the fuck can you get away with no transparency? Well, none of that. You've just gone to another great point, which is Madoff and FTX. About how the fuck? How can you have? How can anybody accept basically ridiculous auditors, outside auditors? Madoff was a one man uh, guy at a strip mall in New City, New York, who was invested with Madoff, which of course is a major conflict of interest. But um, the uh, guy that's taken over, John J. Ray of FTX, says he's never seen such a lack of controls anywhere. Well, somebody signed their financial statements and must have been able uh, must have been able to see that. I want to add something to the SPAC comment we were on. These initial people were, were had integrity and everything, but you said the structure. There's a, The structure screws individual investors because of this thing called the promote. They get to keep a piece of the action at a real insider price and warrants, right? So the outside investors can make a lot of money, particularly on the initial deals before they all crashed, but the insiders are guaranteed. And I find deals like that, it's a little bit too much self-dealing for me. And if you say you're in the business to help clients, don't screw them before they even start. Well, and the other thing about an IPO, and maybe it's I'm old school, but I grew up at a time when you went public, for the most part, employees and executives were not selling into the IPO. And if they were, it was a relatively conservative number, maybe 10% of the holdings of the employees slash the executives. So it's like, okay, sure, take some money off the table. Maybe this company is six, eight, 10 years old, whatever it is, by all means. But it was, while there was no formal rule that I was aware of, it was frowned upon to be selling into the IPO in a meaningful way. And that was even true for investors. And then the sort of the... Uh, unspoken agreement was that the executive team, at least, would limit themselves to roughly 10% a year and that the responsible investors would sort of liquidate over some period of time. And so the, the uh, mm-hmm. oh, and of course, there'd be a lockup. Sometimes it would be a six month after the IPO lockup, a nine month after the IPO lockup. I've seen a couple of year longs. And, you know, so, so the point being, there was all of this sort of some of it was formal and some of it was a sort of a, uh, a, an honor amongst thieves set of undeclared written right. rules that said, hey, listen, you're not a shyster. It, you're going to sell, but you're going to do it responsibly and you're going to do it over time. And in that way, your interests are aligned with yes. your investors. We didn't see any well, of that here. 
No, he and didn't. And I, I listened still, to a Sam, podcast yesterday, Jim. Um, uh, Sam Bankman Freed will not answer the question clearly to did you have a CFO and who signed off on the financials? Yeah. He, he won't answer that question in any way that I can understand the answer. And why didn't you have a legitimate, I mean, a big, you know, reputable firm doing it, you know? And this whole bit, this whole industry is just cowboys, you know, in the night. And, you know, if you, if they want it to be legitimate, they should be in favor of, you know, doing this. And, you know, and if he says he doesn't, if he won't answer those questions, well, how come the new CEO brought in was able to within like his first day say he had never seen a business with such a lack of controls? Right. right. So um, do you have an assessment? Let's go to the people who he materially damaged here. The victims in this who, uh, who as, as somebody uh, who's experienced horrible crime, um, often the victims do not get talked about. And so do we have a sense of how many people got fucked over here, Jim? The number I've seen is in terms of creditors and investor, investors, really like a million, right? And three billion, I think, is the institutional guys. But that number of million stuck in my head only because Madoff was 16,000 in the U.S. and 720,000 in Europe. And so you start getting up there, you know, rather close to a million um, as well. And, um, you know, and this guy doesn't seem to have, you know, much remorse about it. And, um, you know, other than saying, I'm sorry, you know. Well, and he's made weird statements. One of the ones that I can't sort of figure out in my head, because while I've listened to the answer multiple times, I, I don't understand it. He has made statements that the problem is primarily with FTX, what he calls FTX International, not U.S. And to the best of his knowledge, um, the U.S. traders who had um, um, uh, who were trading coins on his exchange should be able to get their money back. Does that make any sense to you? Not really. And I still think that the crux of the problem was they had to get collateral to hold up all this risky trading, which was going on in FTX U.S. as well. And that collateral was what? It was $10 billion of customers' money. And it appeared they were leveraging that money in an extraordinary way that was somewhat akin to a Ponzi scheme in that um, they had a small amount of money. They were trying to turn it into a, or that large amount of money, I should say, they were trying to turn it into an intergalactically giant amount of money. And they got really super leveraged. Chris, that's actually more like Lehman Brothers. Is it? You take, well, you take illiquid, risky assets um, that as soon as the market loses confidence, the collateral is worth nothing, right? And what does that cause? A run on the bank. What was Lehman? Lehman was a run on the bank. Lehman was profitable when it went down, but they had overnight money in repos and commercial paper, and that market shut down. Boom, you're gone. And that's the same thing that happened here. That's why I say that FTT token had to maintain its value for this thing to hold together, right? As soon as that collapsed, and by the way, the FTT token went down 96%. And that's what caused the run on the bank. Well, and, and this that is the other that. weird part of this that I think is, is somewhat lost, which is there's all sorts of buckets of money. And this guy was optimizing, it seems like all of them. So first, an intergalactic amount of venture capital. Second, people doing business with Alameda. And third, people trading crypto on FTX. Are those the three big buckets or how should I think about where all the money came from? See, I would look at that architecture as 
conflicted, um, a major conflict of interest between his then personal and financial and the, because remember this trading business, right? That's a business that Madoff ran legitimately. And he should be taking a piece of that, keeping the market stable and doing things. But he had a personal business over here that had risky bets, who was making, taking that intergalactic money, taking customers' money as collateral and taking risky bets. So that immediately became in conflict with all the folks' money that's going through the trading business, which should be a trading business, right? Where, um, you know, trades are consummated, you take a commission or a piece like that. And as soon as his uh, personal entities that were making risky becks got under threat, he's immediately in conflict with his other business, which is why he ended up taking business. He had to take money out of one to support the other, and it ended up screwing the guys in the in the trading uh, trading business. His responsibility was to keep the trading business going, right. and it should not have been to have a conflicted side affiliate, which most people I don't think even knew about at the time, right? And certainly nobody knew he, he was collateralizing it with customer money, and all of that goes down as soon as Poof. confidence goes away. It, it, it's it's an absolute stunner. So do you think there's any hope or, or or let me ask it this way. What chances do you think if I am an investor, if I am a Alameda customer or an FTX customer, uh, do we think people are going to get much back here or, or is it too early to tell? It's a good question. I, uh, you know, I think that kind of money that's vaporized, right? It doesn't come back. And you remember the Madoff thing was clawback, right? Go after the guys that took their money out and yes. make them pay the um, folks that lost money in the government. You know, the SIPC stays over here and gets away with that murder. There's no SIPC here. There's no entity that can force a clawback as far as I know. Because there's no similar regulations in crypto? No, there's no similar regulations. And some of these institutions have already written the money off, taken the write-off. Yeah, they, they wrote it off as soon as the news came out. The individual folks are the ones I feel bad about. You know, my my son-in-law has been a big um, crypto guy for years. And, uh, you know, I've told him uh, that, you know, I think it's crazy because there's no store of value there ultimately. So what's it going to do? Up, down, up, down, up, down. And in fact, um, they asked me, my daughter and him to officiate their wedding. And the last thing I told them was, Christian, here's some uh, advice. Sell your crypto and buy Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> That's how I ended the wedding. <laughs> well, well, I would nudge you on that. I, I, at a high level, the sort of big insight is now that we have the first generation of a new category of human called native digitals who are digital first, a, a, right. a digital way to transact and store value makes sense. Um, but to your, to your point, you know, the reason the U.S. currency is the is the worldwide currency that we, that everybody pegs to is because they believe it's backed by something, even if it's technically not backed by gold. Um, but theoretically, the U.S. government is is something you can bet on. I believe crypto would be completely dead, except that folks in my son-in-law's generation are, are totally committed to digital transactions. Yes. And so that eventually it's going to find a way that they're going to stick with it. The other thing is blockchain component is very valid, I think, as an engine of um, efficient transactions, right? That, you know, right now Visa, MasterCard have a monopoly, basically, right? Well, a blockchain technology can do all that stuff for almost no cost, right? And undercut that. And, and is that, now we're ta not talking about a store of value. We're talking about a technology infrastructure. But interestingly here, in this case, many have brought it up, 
the blockchain was supposed to save us from this. The blockchain is supposed to be decentralized. Uh, when yeah. when you quote unquote lock a piece of data into the blockchain, it's supposed to be locked. Um, and and yet here we have it. So I I don't know enough about the technology to know whether or not they were using blockchain in the way it was meant to be. Yeah. But if they were, the degree to which they were using blockchain as the backbone for FTX doesn't seem to have protected customers in any way. No, it hasn't. And he has said one of the most extraordinary things I've ever heard a CEO say, and he said it multiple times. Have you heard him say this? Money is fungible. Yeah. What? When he talks about the transfers between, when asked the question about the transfers between FTX and Alameda, and was it this and was it that and how did it happen? He says, well, you know, as you know, money is fungible. Listen, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm insane. I don't think money's fungible. When I call my broker and say, how are things going in my account? It's not fungible. <laughs> yeah. It's fungible in the crypto world. <laughs> that's, the, that's the trouble. So here's another fascinating. So 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 do customers get anything or or is this just a complete wash, do you think? I think it's a com I, I think it's a complete wash. Now crypto always, you know, it goes up and down, right? So if there's some confidence, it comes back. Right now we're still in the cascading, by the way, right? The cascading down. Um, which happened with Archegos. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, that was a family office run by a guy that had been convicted of insider trading so that he only could do family office work. Mm -hmm. But he had big loans with prime brokers on Wall Street, and there's no data mechanism to know what the loans were. And he put on $50 billion of leverage on $5 billion, and nobody, nobody saw that whole perspective until that collapsed. And that's cascading because it could have gone through Wall Street, prime brokers, et cetera, et cetera. The exact same thing that happens here. It went right through the whole crypto world and still going through. So remind me um, uh, in your book, uh, Madoff Talks, what did you discover or where did we land with Madoff on the cents on the dollar that uh, people who got ripped off ended up getting? Yeah, the clawback. The way that it worked, which wasn't fair, the, nine, uh, the, the original investment amount was about $19.5 billion. But remember, some of that was 40 years before. Right. right? And they, their account statements told them they had $65 billion, Okay. The trustee, through this clawback Madoff victim versus Madoff victim, has gotten back $14 billion. $10 billion was from that big four, the Jeffy Pickhauer. So they've gotten 14 out of uh, 19, and that's like 70%, which is incredibly good wow. for a Ponzi scheme. But it's only 22% of what they thought they had. But at least they've gotten 70% of their principal back. That's what you're saying? They got 70% of their principal back. But remember, you ought to look at that principal, in my mind, with an opportunity cost, right? Of course, because of course. They lost dollars, massive. Dollars in, dollars in 1970 are not the same as now. I did my own calculation on the opportunity cost issue. And I would say that number would be about 33 billion. Right. So then they would have got 14 out of 33. Um, but that number is my number. It's, you know, so they go around touting, they've made $2 billion in fees, SIPC has, put none of SIPC's money really into the clawbacks. And they go around saying, we got, we got $14 billion. Uh, I remember that discussion that we had and how corrupt I thought that yeah. fact was, and that it's, it's lost on many people it's lost on many that people. Uh, the, the organization that was saving Madoff's victims made $2 billion, is that the number? $2 billion yeah. in fees. Disgusting. And that money, by the way, came out of the customer fund, which was meant for customers, and allows SIPC to say, 
none of that $14 billion went into the trustee's pocket. Yeah, you're right, because he took the whole customer fund. Now, I'm curious uh, if you've heard this. By way of context, it became clear that Volkswagen, when they were um, uh, lying about their, their emissions in their vehicles and that massive scandal, yep. that they literally had software that when the regulators plugged into the software to, to look at the numbers, uh, it could detect what was up. And the software uh, lied to the regulators on purpose. Yep. By the way, Adolf did the same thing, right? Remember? Beautiful, phony SEC reports that he could print out while they were in the office. And they were gorgeous, right? They were the most beautiful Wall Street reports in history. And he automated that. Yep. While they were right in the office. Well, and, and here, what I've started to hear and read is that they built software to conceal the actual uh, values in a similar Madoff kind of way. Interesting, because that that fits. I have the suspicion that that token that had to be remaining stable was artificially maintained, which is completely illegal. Yeah, it's not clear to me um, in all the way, all of the what we say in the tech industry, the use cases of this lying algorithm that they built. But uh, because, again, details are foggy right now. But uh, I have heard this and read this in multiple places that there was they purposely built software to present data. um, You know, it would not surprise you, but it all shows that um, SBF is more of a con man than we know. Well, so this is another thing I wanted to ask you when when shit like this goes down, it appears to me that uh, the perpetrator of the evil has one of two choices. And I want to see if this kind of connects with how you think about it. I'm either a criminal which Madoff declared he was immediately, right. right? Or I'm radically incompetent and an idiot. And clearly SBF is on a, a, a speaking tour like no other to make it clear he's an idiot, not a criminal. That's exactly what he's doing. And you know what my response to that is? A, we have to respect that we don't know his intent, right? But the degree of the commingling and the lack of controls, I say it doesn't matter what his intent was, that he needs to go to jail either way. Well, it's interesting. I was listening to him on another podcast last night, and uh, when asked the question, maybe not in a legal sense, but maybe in a moral sense, do you think you should be punished? And the podcaster asked him the question, asked the question, and then just stopped after punished and let the air hang. And it felt like it w- it took 20 minutes for him to respond. It was it was probably 30 or 40 seconds, but what did, what did the say? amount of time it took him to answer that question and then sort of the bullshit that came out afterwards yeah. uh, was a stunner. And I'm, I'm no cop and I'm no expert in these areas, but I, I know for sure that if you ask me if I did something that I absolutely did not do, the first thing I would say would be absolutely not. Or with a question like this, should I be punished? Absolutely not. I agree. I mean, the other thing too is how much ignorance can you feign? His parents were both top law professors at Stanford Law School. They were involved in this real estate stuff he was buying for everybody. And, um, you know. Well, and here's something else about that. The Stanford Daily Newspaper has announced that both of his parents, Bankman and Freed, Freed being the mom, Bankman being the dad, uh, who are law professors. The dad, I also, I think he's a business law professor. (laughs) 
Anyway, uh, both of them are not going to be teaching yeah. uh, this coming year at Stanford. Surprise, surprise. And so this is the other thing about, you know, um, a, a while back, we had Abby Ellen on. She's an incredible author. And she wrote a book called Duped. And she was going to marry this guy. And it was a, it was a whole scam. And, she, and so she, and it's a fascinating discussion on how you get duped. And so in this case, it appears that you have a super smart guy that went to all the right schools. Yes. And he had, I mean, in Silicon Valley, you can't be higher up in the social value chain than Stanford Law and Business professors, right? Yes. And so how the fuck is a kid of Stanford Law professors how does this happen? And how does so? How, and how do they all get away with saying we're totally incompetent? You know, and it, it's just it's just the whole thing. It's just. It, and oh, by the way, we have no money. I only have a hundred thousand dollars in the bank, and I can't even get yeah, into my bank account. I'm living still in these luxurious penthouse in the Bahamas and fifty-five thousand dollar unpaid bar bills, right? But um, I don't have a dime to my name, you know. And he should be in a, in a jail cell somewhere. You know, I'm sure he paid off the Bahamian government. I shouldn't say that because I don't, you know, I, I shouldn't be flippant with that. But he ha he was in bed with the government, too, there, just like he was uh, with, with the U.S. Well, so l l let's there's an interesting topic here. So I, I can't help but wonder how much his life must be in danger. And here's what I mean. To your point on crypto, there, there are many good people in crypto, of course. And then there's it did and does attract evildoers. And, you know, when these hackers take down a hospital or some other critical infrastructure that impacts lives and they say we want $10 million or $25 million or hundred whatever it is they say they want, they want it in crypto because they think it's not traceable, right? And, and so crypto has attracted gangsters and criminals. And so one of the things I wonder about is, you know, there's a certain type of person that if you fuck them over for millions or more, they're going to want to come and see you. Another, you raise a good point about that, that always bothers me about crypto. Forget that if, if this FTX had never happened and it was still going, a huge percentage of those transactions are on the dark web for sex trade, drugs, terrorism, Guns. money laundering, oligarchs. And that's not good stuff. It's all illegal. Right. And, and so it's, facilitating. it's a big percentage of all the transactions. And that to me alone is illegitimate. Well, and given that you would assume that a, a enough of a percentage and this again, radical assumption, caveat, caveat, but that some percentage of the trading on FTX was done for nefarious intent by nefarious people. And if you fuck over, let's just use the term gangster for many millions of dollars, uh, you know, I, I hope he has great security. Let me tell you something. Uh, not only are you right, in the Madoff case, J.P. Morgan had money with Sonia Cohn's um, uh, infamous uh, feeder fund coming out of Austria, and it was full of, you know, bad money. They got suspicious and wanted to withdraw their capital from that essentially Madoff fund. Colombian drug lords threatened jp morgan the company yeah. that is the only reason that jp right. morgan went to a, re a regulator which was only the regulator in london not the sec but that's an institution 
you know. Yeah, listen, we had the real DEA narcos on the podcast a couple of years back before COVID. And it's very clear when you talk to the people who took take these guys down that uh, they're, they're not playing and they do deal with international banks and, and so forth. And so, so here it leads me to a question, which is, um, how much do you think, based on your direct contact with with Bernie Madoff, that uh, his life was in danger at, at at any point prior to admitting his crime? Remember, um, Bernie's money vaporized, and he was in he was essentially arrested the next day. So there's no and and I mean I know you developed a relationship with Ruth Madoff. Was do you think her or the or, or the sons was anybody going to come after them given the size of the? Uh, the crime? Say, I don't. I, I have no evidence of that because I happen to know how Ruth lived right here in my hometown. She had no security uh, in any way, shape, or form, and was seen publicly a lot. Um, she walked on the beach there every day. So, uh, so no. But obviously, the, I mean, there were a lot of angry, legitimate victims that you know probably would have done them harm. Not even you know oligarchs or uh, or criminals. Um, and, and, you know, in the U.S., once they're arrested, what is an oligarch going to do? Hey, I was money laundering my dirty money through through Bernie and now I want to come. To right. <laughs> right. The other one, there's a, a Wall Street guy named and I'm not sure I'm going to get his last name right. His name is Mark Cahodes, I think, is his last name. Does that name ring a bell? I don't think so. Unless you give me more here. OK, well, he's been out there talking about this. He's apparently uh, spent quite a bit of money trying to expose uh, Bankman Freed, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And he's been on a number, he's written some things. He's been on a number of podcasts and he's brought up a really interesting point, which is apparently uh, SBF had a business partner, a co-founder who I think list, was listed as the CTO, the chief technology officer named Gary Wang. Mm-hmm. And according to Mark, the only photos of this guy are sort of from the back of the head or sort of grainy and he sort of is, if not disappeared from the Internet, largely disappeared from the Internet. And so you have this one externally facing guy yeah. who literally became a celebrity, hanging out with Tom Brady, all of that. And then you have this other guy, supposedly a co-founder partner who nobody can find. And apparently, according to Mark, hasn't said anything since this happened. So who's Gary Wang? Yeah. You know, and also, too, some of the Alameda staff quit because they could see this thing wasn't was going to collapse and wasn't kosher. So for the CEO, his girlfriend and Sam to keep playing this, hey, we're just dumb college kids in shorts, you know, and somebody gave us all this money. and We didn't realize that we needed some controls on it. It doesn't it doesn't hold water. And in fact, I would worry about his security in the Bahamas, but I also worry about us. He's going to he could disappear at some point. Right. I'm talking about SBF. Yes. Yes. And and this is another part of the mystery. Uh, her, her name, I believe, according to reports, is Caroline Ellison. And she was the, quote, CEO of Alameda. I've seen reports that say she was 28 years old. Yes. And listen, I'm a big fan of young whiz banks doing amazing things. Um, but again, uh, not quite as mysterious as Gary Wang, but certainly not out there going and doing podcasts and talking to the Wall Street Journal. And of course, it appears that she was a girlfriend. And she was a girlfriend, yeah. Now, the other side of this I wanted to talk to you about, um, there's a podcast with Michael Lewis yes. that SBF did before this that uh, Michael and his team sort of republished with 
sort of thoughts on what he said back then in the context of today. And one of the things, Jim, he says on this podcast, he's considering donating up to a billion dollars to the Democrats for the 24 presidential election. And of course, some reports suggest that he was the number two donor in terms of size to the Democrats in the last cycle. I don't know whether that's true or not, but it appears that wherever he was, he was a meaningful donor. And so there's a lot of people asking a lot of questions about a guy, a guy who was a, such a big donor and spent so much time in Washington trying to lobby the government about uh, h- how to regulate crypto. I'm curious about your thoughts there. Well, I think, first off, um, it was a brilliant positioning strategy because he looked like he was in favor of reining in the Cowboys. And he had actually uh, had hired uh, ex CFTC regulators, right? So he was clearly not some kid. He was playing this game, um, you know, very smartly. And it does, you know, it again, I always say the SEC goes around saying they're a cop, but they're not a cop. They come in and clean up the mess. This crypto thing and SPACs, right? And Robinhood, all were, I was talking about them when the book came out two years ago, and every one of them has collapsed. Nothing has been, you know, they didn't get in front of, uh, they didn't get in front of uh, any of these. So, it uh, life doesn't, you know, it just keeps repeating itself. And um, by the way, I'll say on Michael Lewis, I understand that he's actually been with SBF for several months. So he's obviously before this all happened so that he's obviously got the inside track on a book uh, that's coming. Hmm. It's the kind of thing I would jump right into because I like the complexity of the financials. But when you hear Michael Lewis has had that inside access and he's like, you know, he's like a God. So I, I assume he's going to. He- if he's writing the definitive book on SBF like you wrote the definitive book on Madoff, given his track record, I think we could be comfortable saying it's probably going to be a pr- pretty good piece of work, wouldn't you say? What I'm interested in, was he conned, though, by this SBF because he's been with them for months? Or did he see this was going on and was just waiting to put it into a book to blow SBF out of the water? Now, I'll say Madoff and SBF, they talk because they believe that they can sell their story their version of it, even when it's clearly um, not going to work. I mean, Madoff expected me to basically help his reputation come back, right? And how could he have believed that, you know? To your point, the level of arrogance is amazing. Yeah. And, and and these kinds of criminals, you help me here, because, I mean, you had, a, I think, safe to say, a fairly intimate discussion over a long period of time with both Bernie and Ruth. And of course, you were his pen pal. Incredible that you have all those letters. And we had Abby Ellen on, the gal who wrote Duped, who I mentioned. Uh, What is it about these characters that allows some of the smartest people in the world? I mean, if you look at these, the the similarities are eerie. It's almost like the similarities between serial killers. Charming, persuasive uh, 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 get on the inside, feel like they come from the inside. Bernie was the chairman of NASDAQ for a while, uh, SBF's parents, his investors, and yet there's no CFO. His girlfriend is running a company that's a conflict of interest. They're in the Bahamas. Uh, it appears there, I don't know if there was a board or wasn't a board, but it appears there was whatever was going on at that level of governance wasn't right. Um, how is it these characters 
dupe the smartest people in the world. Yeah, you've just you've just given me a chance to uh, um, promo the Netflix thing. We, first of all, these are guys who are narcissists, right? And that's why they're both charismatic and pathological. But the fact that you said sort of like serial killers, well, Joe Berlinger, who is who's directed um, this um, Netflix Madoff documentary, his background is doing serial killers. And he was coming at me as we were, when they were filming me, trying to get me if I thought he is the same as a serial killer. And, you know, after a while I was saying like, well, Joe, you're really the expert on serial killers. Um, if For me to say if Madoff has the same uh, serial killer. But let me say it's coming very soon. It's four episodes. It's called Madoff, Monster of Wall Street. And um, I am myself about to watch it for the first time. I have not seen it, but uh, they, Netflix has given it to me to take an you know early thing. I can't give out the date. When does it when does it come out, Jim? I can only say uh, early next year. I can't give out the date. They're very Netflix controls that, and they'll be doing that um, uh, themselves. Understood. But I can say it, I, it's early that it's coming. I, I can't can't wait to see it. And congratulations on your success. Now. Um, we also had a, a while back on a gal um, who's who goes by the name M.E. Thomas, and she uh, sort of p- positions herself as the first sociopath, psychopath to come public, declare herself as such, and write a book about her life. Um, and we had a fascinating conversation about all of it. Um, and one of the things that she taught me was apparently, again, I'm just, I'm parroting what she said to me. I'm no expert. Um, is that roughly one in a hundred people are a psycho slash sociopath and that the primary character trait of a sociopath is a lack of empathy, a lack of emotional empathy. So when I asked her, for example, about tragedies happening in the world and if she, fires up her browser and looks at news or watches TV and sees news and sees some horrible thing that's happened somewhere in the world. Um, how, how does she feel? And, and the answer she gave me essentially was, I don't have an emotional feeling the way I think you do. I have an intellectual empathy. I understand it was a bad thing and I understand that was horrible for those people. But, you're talking to a guy who, when there's a school shooting, cries. She doesn't have that. The second attribute she shared with me is that a sociopath will do what they think is right for them in the moment. As opposed to you and I, where as, as if you and I make a commitment, we're going to honor that commitment. Even if it becomes inconvenient or whatever, we're going to honor the commitment. We're going to do what we said we were going to do. And a psychopath will not do that. They'll do whatever they think is the best for them. And so I know you're not a doctor and I know you're not an expert in this area, but, but is there any, do you see any psychopathy here? Uh, with SBF, I tell you with Madoff, uh, lack of empathy was a hundred percent lack of remorse. In fact, narcissists, they feel themselves are victim. Bernie felt these greedy investors were forcing him to get them these returns and that they were relentless and it didn't matter if the market went down, they expected Bernie to deliver. So think about this. He set up the con, pledged, guaranteed the uh, performance in an equity business, 
and has convinced himself that these greedy guys, and if they lost all their money, they should, they means they lied about their net worth to get into my fund. So that's, you know, their problem. I don't believe they're diving in dumpsters like everybody said, which is exactly a quote uh, that he gave me. And that's why I keep coming back to SBF. He, his, his remorse is around, hey, I was incompetent. And that's his excuse. They never take responsibility, never take responsibility for what the damage they've done um, in, in any of these things. And another thing that's interesting you say is, um, or that she said, that they make it up as they go along. As you said, I mean, even for, even forgetting if you're not honorable, like honoring a commitment, you still think about, well, next week, if I steal these documents uh, and, and don't admit that they're in Mar-a-Lago, it becomes criminal. But the strategy just becomes every day. There's a new story. The FBI planted it. I declassified them. And any kind of thinking would, would say, why would I put myself under that thing? Why would I Why would I subject myself to criminal because I didn't return documents that he didn't even read when he was in the Oval Office? He didn't read the presidential daily brief every day. Suddenly he needs these documents at Mar-a-Lago, but they're just making it up and lying. No responsibility. And the interesting thing with SBF is uh, having consumed more of him in the last two weeks or so than I, you know, I'll get to the comment I made earlier. I, I literally got to the point where I said, I can't listen to this anymore. Yeah. It's, it's making me nuts. And in the beginning, when I started to listen to him, uh, maybe I'm naive, Jim, but I thought, wow, is there any chance this guy is trying to be uh, honorable here. You know, he, he launched a tweet storm and most criminals go into hiding and he's c- yeah. trying to be forthcoming. And then you start listening to the answers to the tough questions. He's very good at the 30,000 foot view. But then when you say to him, where's the money, Lebowski? Like literally, where it, what happened? Where, where did the money go? And of course, he's got this very sophisticated dog ate my homework answer and so at the beginning i had you know two percent of well you know maybe Mm -hmm. and then and then i had well maybe it was just incompetence and then i was like wait a minute the level of sophistication here and the level of bullshit around the answer you know uh um nasim talib the uh, the legendary author of black swan came out adamantly and said if you if you don't think he's the made off of crypto then you don't understand anything about, you know, I forget exactly what he said, but but the financial system. You know, he's he's been adamant public publicly very early that this was a crime. And I'll say another thing, and I don't mean to beat up on Trump here, and I don't want to offend the MAGA people, but this guy has been saying, you talk about pl- plausible stories, continues to say the 2020 election was stolen. There's no evidence of it. It's been tur- it's been turned over its head. 61 law cases, including um, judges he appointed and judges he appointed in the Supreme Court. It's just, you know, it's the same thing. SBF is going to tell this story over and over. And how is it that they get away with that? It, it's, you know, this one is a known big lie and it still comes up every other day, you know, um, like it's like it's legitimate. And um, just as you say, these and they're very persuasive when they start, right? They're very like in the beginning, the first the first thing I could I forget what it was, you know, he was. Uh, and then the big one, of course, was he talked to uh, Deal Book and uh, at their conference. And while he didn't answer tough questions, he didn't get asked a lot. That's the other thing. 
particularly in the beginning, it's, it's less so now. The media seemed to give this guy a huge hall pass. Yes, yes. And I think that's what that's really offended a lot of a lot of uh, Republicans or conservatives who say and it plays into this whole mainstream media is bias thing, you know, which you kind of hope is not true. Um, but, you know, a lot of these places like CNN allowed themselves to become uh, taken over by more by going left and, you know, to counterbalance what they thought was Fox. But it's wrong, just as wrong on CNN's part uh, to have done that. And yeah, the, 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 absolutely. That the media has basically let this guy off so far. Well, and it actually it made me think uh, the guy at the journal who broke the Theranos case, his name is John Carreyrou, if I'm remembering correctly. Yep. And having watched that carefully, um, it just puts in context how incredible his work was. It puts I for, I'm forgetting their names now, but there were two female reporters, if I'm remembering right, who broke the big um, Weinstein story. Yes. Uh, uh, Pharaoh did a huge part on that. Like it, you just start to look at some of these reporters who were very early or broke some of these scandals. And you think, wow, their work stands in stark contrast to even after, forget all the stuff pre the scandal in the case of SBF post the scandal uh, people. I thought the, the first round of, uh, uh, of quote unquote analysis in the media, I thought was uh Maybe not laudatory, but certainly not at the level that one might have expected. <laughs> and, you know, there's another example. You talk about narcissism. Has Elizabeth Holmes ever fessed up to what she did, really? Not no. really, no. no. No, she's never taken responsibility for it. And my intent was good. Uh, you know, uh, I was just trying to, you know, her. it's the same thing. I was trying to do these great things, revolutionize the world, bring blood tests to everybody. Meanwhile, she's lying to Walgreens, lying to investors. The thing didn't work. She knew Giving it people help. fake test results, which she was not found guilty of, which many of us yep. find shocking. And there she is. A conflicted romantic relationship with a guy that she then used as her whole defense. I was abused. Um, you know, it, it, these guys are all the same, and they're very dangerous because look how effective they are. You talk about Weinstein. Weinstein was untouchable for what 30, 40 years. Bernie untouchable. Elizabeth Holmes is worth nine billion dollars with top level gov ex government officials, you know, defending her. George Schultz defended her again, his own right. own nephew. Right. <laughs> Actually, I think it might have been grandson, but yes, yes. Grandson. So it reminds me, of course, Reagan's famous or one of his famous quotes, trust but verify. Yes. Are we moving into an era of verify then trust? Because I think you know, I think about you, I think about me, I think about people that I do business with that I've known for many, many, many years. They're radically transparent. See, I, 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 this is where I see Wall Street history repeats itself. If you recall, when Bernie went down, right, and Diana Enriquez wrote the, 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 the book then, and she called it the death of trust, right? Yes. And Wall Street would never be the same that there would never be this trust that was inherent in the financial markets. Well, here we are in 2022, crypto unregulated. What happened? Completely based on trust, no due diligence, the exact same thing, boom, blows up. So, so I think we're moving into an era, era where it will be verify than trust. And what I personally believe is that honorable, ethical people are fine with that. Yes. 
I'm not as optimistic as you are, though, because you're saying we're going to move into this verified era. Wouldn't you have thought that would have happened after losing $65 billion of normal people's money? I would have thought so. But I think the combination of Theranos, while it wasn't traditional VCs, as we talked about, and now this, if you're a VC and you are, look, I'm an investor in a bunch of these venture funds, what they call an LP, a limited partner. I'm not a massive one the way, you know, Stanford and huge right. endowments and some major corporations and like are, of course. But you got to believe the big LPs are all asking the same question, which is I need to understand your your uh, due diligence process. I need to understand your transparency and governance model, et cetera, et cetera, because we, we don't want to have any of this. And there's two parts of it. There's the actual money that you lose. And then if you're one of these major endowments who takes a big hit on one of these things, yeah. you know, you look like idiots and it's, 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 yeah. it's bad for the brand of whatever the thing yep. you're connected to is. So there's, it's just bad all around. And, uh, and I think, I think ethical people have no problem being transparent. If you ask me yeah. about my taxes, yeah. you ask me about my business practices, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I, whatever you want to see is come here. I talk to anybody you want, you know, et cetera. I, everybody that I've known who's been honest in business is radically transparent and is, is even more than that is forthcoming, particularly with financial information. You know what? That's why when I say, you know, SPACs need a degree of regulation, I'm not trying to say, you know, this overregulation that that upsets everybody. But just like you said, if I want to make money in the SPAC market and I'm totally honest, why wouldn't I want at least transparency, due diligence requirements? I believe a failure of due diligence should be a criminal offense. Meanwhile, there is no definition of due diligence right now as to what is and what is not. And I also say you're an honest guy and I'm hopefully an honest guy. I would say you and I, if we wanted to put together a scam, we could be successful at it, at least for a while, just because of the things we just talked about. We're trusted. Yes. Yes. And, and that's the key, right? If you want to pull off a scam, yep. you have to look like an insider. You have to get you have to have radical social credential in the domain in which you're going to pull the scam. And one of the things I always remember and I hadn't thought about it deeply until our conversation about Madoff. He ripped off other Jewish people. Yeah, it's affinity crime, affinity. Right. And, 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 and you okay. helped me understand how rare that is because it's like, well, maybe I'll, I'll rip off these other people who are not, quote unquote, my people, whatever definition of my people you have is. But it, it's that trust with, quote unquote, whoever your people are that allows for this malfeasance. It was the brilliance of Madoff, right? Because in the, especially in the Jewish face, when you've been thrown out of every country you've ever been in for a thousand years, a Jewish person ripping off a Jewish person in finances is unheard of. Unheard and it's of. like a sacrilege. So there's this built-in trust. And then you throw in all of his own relatives, right? But but exactly. And, and this, this is not just, forget a, a faith-based, dentists. Dentists are famous for knowing nothing about investments, but putting money into partnerships and venture things because Dennis Joe told Dennis Ann, who told Dennis Larry, right. and none of them know what the investment is. Right. Now, remind me again, Jim, how long Madoff was sentenced to? 150 years. Yeah, I knew it was massive. And then he was in jail for how long before he died? Uh, well, he died um, in 2021. So he was in jail from um, about 2009 to 2021. Oh, longer than I remember. 
Yeah, he's, he since he pleaded guilty, he could have made it to 2011 and all. You know, we're going through the appeals process and everything, but um, uh, but he he pleaded guilty because he wanted to not have Ruth go through a trial. Yes, and, and he told me if you give this credence, he felt he'd be more effective basically blackmailing the big four to get the money back for his people, that his investors, that he'd be more effective than if he cooperated with the government. And then he had to stonewall, right? Yes. You know, for defense, defense purposes. Blame someone else. And and it seems like uh, SBF is doing a very interesting thing, which is he won't name Caroline Ellison, the, the girlfriend CEO of Alameda, in these discussions. And um, he just says, well, I, I had nothing to do with Alameda. It was over there. And so he is appearing to be honorable towards her in, uh, in some way. And at the same time, he's hanging around to dry. Correct. And right. if the reports are right, and again, these are just reports I've seen. Um, he apparently owns 90 percent of Alameda. Yes, he owns 90 percent of Alameda and claims he had he had no idea basically what they're doing. The other thing he. He claims he did control FTX, right? How could he not know ten billion dollars of funds were uh, that were customer money were were, were um, commingled in Alameda Research? How could he claim he doesn't know that? And he'll say the most you'll get is I didn't realize it was ten billion. I thought it was you know a little you know, but a, a dollar. Well, and it's like it's like when my wife says to me, "Hey, Lockhead, why can't you get out the fucking house faster?" And I say, "Well." As I get older, as I spend more time on the planet, it appears my keys hide more regularly in weirder places. And so I don't know where my fucking keys are. And his answer to me is a very sophisticated bizno babble version of I can't find my keys when asked, where's the eight billion? I like I like it's like, wow, I like your other analogy. The dog ate the homework story, you know, that fifth graders use that. And I'll tell you, if the dog ate the homework. That dog shit is the most valuable dog shit in the history of dog shit. <laughs> yeah, he'll try and, uh, and so, so listen, I know it's hard to speculate, but what do you think happens here? I mean, it's complicated because he's in the Bahamas. What's your best guess, Jim, as to what this guy's fate is? If we assume customers, investors are going to get zero, then w what happens to this guy and all the associated people around him? Because I don't know. Yeah, I don't think you can do this alone. I'd like to see, um, and Bill Cohen and I have talked about this, an examiner similar to the bankruptcy examiner that did an unbelievable job on Lehman Brothers. And by the way, they didn't listen to him. He came up with criminal offenses and nobody at Lehman was charged criminally. But some, that's an autopsy. And that needs to be done because a, we'll trace what happened, where the money is, and 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 point to whether this was criminal behavior by him, by Ellison, by the the whole things. I personally think that I a I don't say that I want to say that I can read his mind and say intent, but I've told you I don't count it at this stage. I think he has to go to jail. Now the question is, you know, he's got legal uh, lawyers for parents and stuff. Is does he play the game and go through years and years and never admit 
and then let the trial process work out? Does he go and hide and not come back from the Bahamas or uh, or whatever? But just by the way that he's overexposed himself and said all these things, he doesn't look good, as you say. He's not really giving straight answers. He's just saying, I'm a good guy. I gave I gave all this money. I'm altruistic. I was going to give 90% of it, and I was incompetent, over my head. I'm only whatever he is, 20-something. And you know, I think he's just 30 now, but yeah, very young, obviously. So you're, let's say you're writing this, and you're just 30, and you don't understand how to put controls in. Okay, I'll buy that. Why don't you have a chief financial officer? Why don't you have a ledger? Why don't you have a legitimate auditor? Why don't you hire someone? If you can buy $300 million of real estate, hire someone that can make sure everything is locked down. Why don't you do any of that? And, you know, the interesting thing, uh, this this investor, Mark Cahodes, it's C-O-H-O-D-E-S. Um, one of the things he said as, as a guy, he says he's had a long Wall Street career, that everybody that he knows on Wall Street who starts their own firm or ascends to, you know, positions of, of notoriety and power has mentors and can tell you, oh, I studied under so-and-so. It is, it is. Even though, of course, you get an education. Typically, uh, it is a it is a industry where people are trained under masters, typically, and can point to a philosophy or an approach or or what have you, and say, "Well, I, I you know, I apprenticed essentially under these folks." And and he he said, "This is, these are his words, not mine." That the the major players here, Gary Wang, Carolyn Ellison, and obviously SBF, and I'm sure others. He said. You know, you can't point to that here. Who, who did they train under who had been successful in other endeavors that are similar to this? And his point was you can't see any of that the way you can with a normal person who ascends in, in a Wall Street type um, company. That's their defense, that they didn't know it, that they had no controls. And that, you know, that's going to be their defense. We don't we don't have any experience. By the way, Madoff didn't have independent custodian, right? That's how I got away with it for so long. There's no custodian here. There's no protection of all the me. There's $10 billion alone that he could move. And there's no custodian or protection. That money is just right mixed in with the with the firm. And that's a formula. You know, it's a formula. And so, so and I know you're no not a lawyer, but is there any scenario in your mind where you can see where he just hangs out in the Bahamas and never, never comes back to the U.S. and never faces justice? That's another thing. There's a thing that Bill Cole and I, we talked about, we disagree on. Bill thinks there's a possible scenario where this stuff plays it out and he does, he is this idiot and he comes back and has a, uh, a second, you know, a second career, second success. I don't believe that. I believe that, you know, I believe he's going to have to end up in jail um, or, you know, or something because the damage is, is, is too much and it's still cascading. And there's no, there's no legitimate reason for, for why he can say that this is acceptable. You know, saying that you have no controls in a $30 billion business is not a defense in my mind. You know, yeah, it's a great way to pull off a con. Well, and as somebody who's been an officer and a director of multiple public companies, non-lawyer, of course, my understanding, having given, ha- having received this lecture m- multiple times in my life, is exactly that. Uh, incompetence is not a defense. Maybe it helps a little on sentencing as opposed to malfeasance. Right. But as an officer and a director of a public company, you're not allowed to say, I didn't know. 
and uh, I wasn't paying attention and I don't have a degree in finance or whatever. <laughs> and you know what? It totally undermines his whole public I wanted regulation. I was working with Congress. I wasn't fighting the government and all this. But by the meantime, I had no transparency underneath, no controls, claim I don't even know where the money is or that, you know, this woman over here who was my girlfriend at one point took all this money and I didn't even know she did it. Oh, I own 90 percent of it. Oh, I then have a major conflict of interest. You know, it, it just cascades over and over and over. And his whole excuse was I'm such a good person. You know, I'm a good guy. We go back to Madoff, right? Madoff was incredibly charitable, was he not? Yeah, with other people's money. He was very charitable. And <laughs> and you're right. He was, uh, it was the same kind of thing. He, he, what he cared about was not greed, not lining his pockets. He cared about his reputation and that the, the business was perceived over the good one as so successful. That's what he cared about more than anything. Do we have the same thing here? If Madoff cared about reputation, maybe even you tell me some degree celebrity, uh, stature, prestige, all of those sorts of things. You know, you have a situation here with SBF where he's with Tom Brady, he's in Hollywood, he, he's got, you know, a million plus Twitter followers and a you know, giant social media presence. Everybody's trying to get to him. He's this wonder kind, you know, all these things. And so there is, a, there is an amount of the seeking of status or, or celebrity that seems to go through some of these quote unquote white collar serial killers. Well, I th I think that um you I think SPF probably was not greedy in the sense he's probably sincere in that he was going to give it away or whatever and that he wasn't lining his pockets, you know, as a criminal, a pure criminal would do. On the other hand, I'd like to know where that 300 million came to buy real estate. Right. The other interesting thing with the Elizabeth Holmes case which is probably why she didn't get more time, although I think personally she should have got more than 11 years. But um, she didn't sell any stock. Well, yeah. And, and so she she could make a defense that said, I believed I was trying to change the world. And even though on paper I was worth billions, she never sold shares in Theranos. And so even though she created all this massive damage, she didn't monetize her evil. But let me tell you, this is part of the narcissism again, because she didn't trade the stock or anything. I believe she probably was sincere on changing the world. What she could not accept was when she saw that it was going to go down and that it wasn't going to work. This is the same problem Madoff had. They can't admit that. They cannot admit that. So they go to any ends of the earth to keep it going, which is why you get criminal behavior coming out of it. So, so in that scenario, do you believe there's a, a, a reasonable chance that there is some similarity here that maybe an Elizabeth Holmes, maybe a Madoff, and now maybe an SBF for they find themselves in a challenging business situation. Yes. There's a nefarious way they think they can stick handle through this exactly. and, and then and then they'll be out of it and it'll take a month, it'll take a quarter, it'll take six months, whatever it is. We'll do this thing. It's it's not cool, but we'll just get out of this jam. And then and then they're on the slippery slope. Or do you think these folks wake up or plan from the beginning uh, uh, this kind of a scam? I, you know, or can I, we tell? I can't get inside their minds. I would give them the benefit of the doubt. But you'll notice not giving up and, you know, delusionally keeping going. SBF was saying after this whole thing collapsed, the money's gone. All I need is somebody I was going to be this close to getting another investor who would have bailed it out. It's always right around the corner. And in the meantime, 
I'm wiping people out. I'm wiping money out. I'm lying. Um, and they're, they're good cons. Now, again, I don't know SBF. We know that Theranos, we know Madoff. Uh, we don't know inside SBF yet how nefarious this was. But it looks like the same kind of, you know, um, um, you know, hubris. He should have been pulling as soon as he saw that the collateral was not going to hold. Give it, it wasn't even his money. Right. But even if once he saw that uh, he had to blow up. And I think he just felt he could stay one step ahead of it before it blew up. He'd get, you know, he, yep. he tried to sell to the Chinese guy. And then the Chinese guy did five, two days of due diligence and saw through it. That's the whole point right. of these things. Five minutes of due diligence would blow all these things out of the water. Um, Madoff could have been caught in five minutes. Well, and he, I forget the the guy's name, but there was a guy who caught him years and years beforehand, well, right? And Marcopolis figured it out in two hours. Right. Right. And then there they couldn't get anybody to believe him. But no. so far, to the best of our knowledge, that person if is not in this situation or if they are, they haven't come forward yet. Uh, I don't know. Was there a whistleblower? I, th- I think there might have been a bit. Of a- I, I, I have not heard if, if there is one. I have not heard of that yet. Right. I, I, the closest I've heard is that uh, a number of Alameda employees quit yes. a while back because they thought there weren't enough controls. But I don't know if they thought there was malfeasance. We do know that they apparently, uh, and I think SBF has confirmed this, he, he goes to great lengths in these interviews, Jim, to say it was a separate company, it was a separate location, we didn't want to commingle, but apparently in this massive house or compound that they had, SBF employees were there, and apparently there's an insinuation that the CEO, uh, Caroline Ellison, might have been living with him at some at some point, although that does not appear to be 100% clear. On one hand, he's saying it was separate, but it appears that he might have been living with her and or other Alameda people. We'll see as time goes on. Yeah, she had this, um, I don't know what the word is exactly, polymorphous view on sex, you know, that it was sort of, you know, amongst a whole bunch of them together living, the, you know, um, that was the way to do it and everything. So the, 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 we know what they are. They're walking conflicts of interest in every part of their life. Yeah. And I, I, I didn't necessarily want to touch that one. But yeah, I mean, there's some people and look, uh, I'm the furthest thing from a conspiracy theorist and I, I want to see the facts come out. But it appears there might have been some really weird ass hanky panky. There's discussions about all kinds of drugs. And, you know, so again, who knows? We'll see over time. Yeah, yeah. The thing that I find most upsetting about this conversation, which not surprising, but upsetting is at least your initial assessment is nobody's going to get their money back. I don't, yeah, I don't know. It's or hard. very little. Where are you going to, you know, I always, I mean, if, if, if crypto's at a hundred thousand again, or 60,000 or 70,000, maybe, and they hang on long enough, maybe there's some money that comes back. I don't know. I, I personally, and the institutional investors, I don't think they deserve it. And I, and, and, you know, they have a, that's not their money either. Right. They owe, they owe a due diligence fiduciary, um, you know, uh, obligation to the money, to the investors that gave them that money. Right. And then, so then this comes out and there's no controls, there's no this, there's no that. These are not, they can't use the SBF excuse. You know, um, BlackRock, Sequoia, Citadel, they can't say, oh, well, you know, we wouldn't have known this stuff, we wouldn't have found it, because they could have found out in a day that there were no controls. And it's not Sequoia's money, right? It's, you know, it's pension fund, it's, you know, institutional, it's high net worth. It's. And, and listen, I certainly understand that and, 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 believe that due diligence is critical for all the reasons you mentioned. Absolutely. Uh, 
And the other thing, as people dogpile on, whether it's the media or the investors or, or the regulators, which, which are all valid, I think, criticisms of. Um, and SBF's the criminal. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. So now I, I want to be respectful of your time, Jim. I know you've got a lot to do. Uh, there's a lot going on in your world right now. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to touch on? I guess that the regulatory system, um, you know, we talk about a failure of due diligence on Wall Street, but the regulatory system, again, failed here, right? It's non-existent. Okay. Now, did it fail in part because he bought every Democrat? Did it fail in part because he had ex-CFTC people that were lobbying so that he could, you know, have this thing held in abeyance? And um, I don't know. But the fact is, why are we 12, 15 years after Madoff having a due diligence failure of this nature? You know, why, when everybody has seen crypto is facilitating dark web transactions, has no regulatory um, uh, structure and has no store of value so that it's up and down? Um, You know, we should try not to repeat uh, history. uh, and, And, you know, Unfortunately, we keep we keep doing it. The other thing is that I'm, there's a lot of false populism. I call it Robin Hood, maybe SBF. They're presenting themselves as the democratization of financial services. We're getting we're beating up on big bad Wall Street. Uh, we're going to go after them. We care about um, the common man, and all these things are ripping off these people. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the people who talk about the importance of authenticity tend to be the least authentic people in the world. So there's a weird sort of, I know you are, but what am I thing going on in some of this that's, and and the bummer about that is there are many great people who do want to make a difference, who do want to be charitable, who do want a company that both makes money and contributes to society. And, and those are legitimate uh, objectives and goals. And they legitimately, um, participate in them. I saw very recently uh, Salesforce uh, made a, a multi-million dollar contribution to uh, an organization to help criminals who who want to uh, better themselves and learn technology. And I think use Slack, if I remember. Anyway, I, you know, I think a guy by way of example, like Benioff, I hope, um, you know, is trying to do the right thing. And many other business leaders. I, I think, by the way, there's a tremendous amount of good on Wall Street, too. And there's a lot of a, a lot of good people. There's a lot of inherent conflicts of interest that cause problems, right, that should be fixed. But, um, Wall, you know, Wall Street should welcome enough regulation that people like SBF or Madoff can't destroy it for everybody. Yes. They fight all regulation, but it allows these guys that they should want out of the industry um um, to foster. I have a theory, if you have a sec, on why the regulators fail. And here's the aha. They have no idea what's going on. Yeah, that was true. No, no. And I, and I, I most so. So once you understand that people who are 35 and under are native digitals and they've grown up in a reality that's digital first. And here's my latest example of how digital first they are. The category of doorbell is over. Because when native digitals uh, show up at each other's home, they text here. And so in an analog environment with an analog device that has been used for a very long time, the primary default approach is digital first. 
and they, they some of them find a doorbell to be um, uh, rude. <laughs> so that's how digital first they are. So 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 here's my point: How many people in Senate in the Congress are 35 or younger? How many people understand what the blockchain is? I have heard a lawmakers talk about technology in ways that fucking terrify me, Jim, because I can tell they have no idea how the industry works. And so if you take me and you plot me in Japan without a translator and you say, okay, go be successful and even more govern some part of Japan. Well, fuck, I I can't do that. And that's the, I think it's almost that bad. And so we have a situation. It's all greased by money. It's all greased by money. Right. So we have, what do we have? We have a situation where lobbyists are educating um, people who are two generations away from understanding, you know, what this is and having grown up with it. And so, look, I understand lawmakers have to talk to somebody. um, So I'm not stupid about that. But at the same time, look, I feel like I'm fairly conversant in the crypto world. I also know that I don't think I'm qualified to be the regulator on it. And I think, frankly, somebody who is younger at least needs to, or a group of people who are younger, who grew up in a native digital world, who've been working on this technology for a long time, need to be a material part of figuring out how we regulate the industry. And it should be structured rationally. Why is the CFTC and the SEC, they have overlooking jurisdictions, um, the Agriculture Committee o- oversees CFTC. You talk about not knowing. Should the Agriculture Committee be dealing with de- decentralized digital finance? No, it makes, it makes no sense. But they're not going to give up that power. The chairman of it wants it. So nothing happens. And the lobbyists, you know, and then the lobbyists play into that. So you have Gary Gensler trying to get his hands on this, but the CFTC has official hands on it. They do nothing, you know, so it's all a, it's all a giant. Well, yeah, well, listen, of course, Jim, you'd want the agriculture department yeah. regulating crypto. <laughs> all right. Anything else, Jim? Yeah. If you'll just allow me to, you know, put a plug in the book, Madoff Talks, uncovering the untold uh, story behind the biggest Ponzi scheme in history and Netflix four-part series, Madoff, Monster of Wall Street is coming early next year. And I mean early. And um, I think people will really uh, obviously enjoy it. Joe Berlinger, one of the leading directors in Hollywood and the leading true crime director. And he's a great guy. Outstanding. Well, you know how I feel about Madoff Talks. I think it's an extraordinary piece of work. Thank you very much. And, and the level of detail and investigation you went into is extraordinary and expected in a legendary book like that. But then on top of that, the fact that you got to know Ruth and became Bernie's pen pal um, it, it, it's, it's incredible. And I can't wait for the Netflix special. And, um, I deeply appreciate your time, Jim. You're incredible. I deeply appreciate your work. And, uh, as you well know, you are welcome back here anytime. Yeah, I, I said, I will come back anytime. I love, uh, I love the prep you do. I love the questions. I love the free flow of it. We can say whatever we want. And, and it's nice not to be under a five minute time limit, you know, Well, there he is, the legendary Jim Campbell. His book is called Madoff Talks, Uncovering the Untold Story Behind the Most Notorious Ponzi Scheme in History. And personally, I believe that Jim's book should be taught in every business school and that every employee of every regulatory body in the world that oversees our financial systems uh, should be tested on the details of his book. That's how much I think of it. 
And uh, don't forget that Jim's new Netflix series is coming soon. It's called Madoff, the Monster of Wall Street. And uh, I really want to thank Jim for coming on and for his insights. All right. We would like to thank, in addition to Jim, of course, you. Thank you so much for your time and attention. It means uh, the world to us here at Follow Your Different. Also want to remind you that Category Pirates uh, just launched the world's first free category design training course. Free training course on how to design your category of your future. Go to CategoryPirates.com and uh, you too can start learning how to create the future of your choosing. My friends at Interview Valet are how you get your leading thoughts on leading podcasts. If you're an author, entrepreneur, marketing person, or just somebody trying to make a difference in the world and you want to get on leading podcasts, check out interviewvalet.com. They're the leaders in podcast interview marketing. And my friends at Malibu Milk are the world's first whole plant flax milk founded by a mom. Check out Malibu Milk with a Y.com. Malibu Milk with a Y.com. Today's information is provided just solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. Please consult your lawyer, doctor, accountant, spiritual advisor, category designer, and or yoga instructor before acting on anything you heard today. All rights do remain perturbed. Every Oddcast is recorded in full ADHD. Uh, please practice real dialogue, and don't forget, real dialogue podcasts make legendary gifts. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do our legendary technical execution, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon. Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. And the Bobus Brothers, EX and RJ, do our web development. Our law firm is Weed & Jack, and our accounts are three balance sheets to the wind. (laughs) want to say a huge thank you to all of our military heroes Listen to the Ramones. Lily Tomlin was right. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Sam Bankman-Fried. Sorry, SBF. We just ran out of time for you. That's it. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different. <laughs>